Everybody, welcome to the October 28, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Nizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the FBI announcing on Friday that it will renew its probe into Hillary Clinton's emails. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, well, I guess technically this is an October surprise because we've been talking about the emails for a long time, but opening up an investigation sounds like a big deal. What do you think? I would say reopening the investigation sounds pretty surprising. We don't know yet what email has prompted this, but... Who knows, maybe Denver will be back on the news again since this is where her private server was located. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, we, we talked a lot about Trump on this program and, and a fair share to Hillary, but this is the first time she's led the program. Is this a significant deal for October 28th? She's the only person who can lose to him and he's the only person who can lose to her, so that this could make the race closer. What, we, what I would guess is that this is not, whatever these new emails are, it's not just more emails that were labeled confidential. And you remember she got out of that one by saying that she'd forgotten her training where they told you that C on an email meant it was confidential. Now, this is the, the woman who's the most, supposedly, the most experienced person in history, so prepared to be president, two decades at the top levels of government, but she... Uh, she just couldn't remember what that C meant. It was very, too complicated over her head. But it's, it's not about that. It's got to be about something else. And given FBI Director Comey's extremely lenient standards, contrary to all the line staff, for what is a prosecutable case involving her, there's got to be something pretty big. Eric Sonnen, political analyst. Uh, you know, again, I don't get into conspiracy theories and everything else, but announcing this on October 28th, we are 11 days from Election Day, uh, seems like a big deal to me. You? It's a big deal. We'll see in maybe 24 to 48 hours how it plays and how big a deal it is. I think people are so locked in now, and Hillary loyalists, Lord knows, I found out through social media myself this morning, they, they, they want to hear nothing about Clinton Foundation or anything else. They are dialed in, locked in, uh, in willful denial about any issues that uh, Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton or any of them might have. I think David is probably right for, for, for James Comey, 10 days, 11 days before the election to announce this. It's not just one more random email somebody found. There has to be something approaching a smoking gun. I still think the odds are overwhelming that she's going to win this election. And therefore, this really comes into play with the president-elect Hillary Clinton, not just with candidate Hillary Clinton. Going to be fun to watch. Penfield Tate, attorney at QTAC Rock, also a long time, a former uh, uh, longtime state lawmaker. What do you think? Uh, is this, if you're on uh, Hillary Clinton's ground team here in Colorado, are you worried? Um, I don't know if I'd say worried. I'd say annoyed more than anything. The whole thing is rather bizarre. You've got a Congress that's out of session until after the election anyway. So there's a question about whether, why the FBI is doing this now. Secondly, I, you know, some people are going to ask the question, is the FBI trying to cover their own tails because they did an investigation, closed it, said we looked at everything, and now they've got more emails either from WikiLeaks or the Kremlin, either or, and, and all of a sudden they're reopening the investigation 11 days before an election. It all seems 
I can't say it's bizarre because if nothing else, this election cycle has changed the definition of what's normal and what's bizarre, but it's weird. Yeah, weird. That's to say the least. Well, with 11 days to go to Election Day, national money is raising the profile of two key congressional races here in Colorado. Ads for the races between Mike Coffin and Morgan Carroll in CD6 and Scott Tipton and Gail Schwartz in CD3 have flooded the Colorado airwaves. Meanwhile, the campaigns for some of the ballot issues have also turned up the heat. Uh, Patty, I think for a while we knew that the Coffin Cure race was going to be a pretty big fight. But the Tipton one surprised me, especially seeing so much of that media here in the Denver market. Uh, what's been your reaction? Well, we knew from the start that the big race here was not going to be Daryl Glenn and Michael Bennett, but it was going to be Carolyn Kaufman. And the fact that that has continued to be so tight and that Kaufman is really fighting for his seat isn't a surprise considering who is heading the ticket, the Republican ticket. But the Schwartz and Tipton race is fascinating. It's going to be three million bucks before we're done. No one really thought Gail Schwartz had a chance, but now money is coming in. The national Republicans are coming to fight for Tipton's seat, and I think it will be a brueling brawl to the end, and I think, I think she's got a shot. I think um, Kaufman has a better shot of keeping his seat than Schwartz has of taking over for Tipton. Also in the ballots, we're seeing it really heat up. We've got John Elway touting three different measures right now. I don't know where you get your political advice, but I know I don't get it from John Elway. <laughs> that was surprising. He had been at least avoiding politics for so long. To see him in the ad uh, definitely surprised me. David, um, do you? Uh, people have been talking about upsets, and I think it's part of the, the hype of a campaign. Oh, the, the, the Senate and the House, it might be everything. It might be this huge wave, that wave. I don't know if I buy into all of that, but what do you think about the upset chances in both CD3 and CD6? Uh, if Morgan Carroll wins, that's not an upset. That, that's a, a tough contest, and everybody knew it would be one of the marquee congressional race, House of Representatives races nationally. Gail Schwartz is a good candidate and, and has a chance, and, and one of the things may be the size of the national wave. That's the kind of thing that if you just had a, a neutral election year with no national influence, Tipton would, would win it, but he not in a landslide. And a, a wave is the kind of thing that can carry a prepared candidate like Schwartz, who's been working hard and is experienced, uh, over the top in, in the right year. The challenge for the Democrats to take the House of Representatives nationally is if you take every race where they have a high-end candidate like Schwartz and you give them the win in all of that, it still leaves them a few seats short. So that the question is, do you have what is the tsunami-type wave like the Republicans had in 94, where not only do you win basically all of the close races you thought you had a chance at, but you even pick up some wins where you thought, wow, there was no chance. We were, had no possibility of winning this, like when longtime highly corrupt Congressman Dan Rostenkowski from Chicago was defeated in 94 by really a guy who was a, an okay candidate, but just happened to, to be in the right place at the right time. Eric, we've watched a lot of elections together. As you see this one come together, the season's been unprecedented. But as we get to results season, uh, do you think we're going to see a lot of upsets, or at the very least, as, uh, to carry on what David said, uh, Morgan Carroll taking CD6 or an upset in CD3? Uh, I largely agree. You go a little bit different than David in his final conclusion, but largely agree with the frame he put on this. Uh, CD6 is always going to be a battle, particularly if there's anything less than a stellar Republican year. Andrew Romanoff ran for that, let's not forget, two years ago, but that was in a big-time 
Republican year, and he was never competitive. Morgan Carroll is a better, as we've discussed, a better candidate for that seat because she culturally fits that district. Uh, if the Kaufman people think they're still in this race, I think it is just a question of how big the drag is on the top of the ticket and whether the absence of a top of the ticket, and I'm not just talking about Donald Trump, I'm also talking about Daryl Glenn, does this become a ticket-splitting year? Ticket-splitting has gone out of vogue very largely in this country. When a lot of us around this table grew up, ticket-splitting was everything. And you could have a Democratic governor elected with 60% of the vote in the same year as a Republican senator elected with 60% of the vote. Ticket-splitting has gone out of vogue. Does ticket-splitting come back in now because people want to put a check and a break on President Hillary Clinton? Or do Republicans, are they just dispirited? They stay home. They don't show up at the polls early turnout results are indicating Democrats are turning in ballots at a much higher and quicker pace. If Scott Tipton loses that race, first of all, it tells me that Mike Kaufman is long gone. I mean, you know, Kaufman is going to, has a much stronger chance than Tipton does, uh, opposite way. Tipton has a much stronger chance than Kaufman does of surviving. So if the landslide is substantial enough to throw out Tipton, Kaufman is long gone. I would go one step further. If Scott Tipton loses this race, it tells me that the Republicans' House majority is in jeopardy. Because if Democrats are winning seats like the Colorado 3rd Congressional District, they're winning enough other seats around the country that they could get all the seats they need to take over the House. Penn, in both Mike Kaufman and Scott Tipton, you have uh, seasoned incumbents who didn't really do a lot of damage themselves. They're, they're tough uh, competitors. And in their Democratic uh, challengers, you have uh, people, uh, both women with significant experience in the Colorado legislature. It seems like a pretty strong Democratic bench, I guess, uh, how we call it around this table. Uh, is that playing into this? It's not just a Democrat-Republican year, but there's some significant uh, experience in, on both sides. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's the fact that, that it, it looks like a strong Democratic year. And in, in both of the candidates, Gail Schwartz and Morgan Carroll, you have seasoned um, legislators who are more than token opposition, who have put together strong campaigns, well-financed, and they're going after two incumbents uh, in, in a, what could be a heavily Democratic year. I agree with Eric. If, if Tipton loses, Kaufman's long gone. And if both Kaufman and Tipton lose, Democrats nationally probably take back the U.S. Senate, and they may well get the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, and, and, I th and I think that's becoming more and more likely because when you look at just the Kaufman race, Mike spent a whole lot of time distancing himself from Trump early on and trying to show that he was the candidate for multicultural, multicolored Colorado because he was trying to distance himself from what I'm sure his people were seeing was a drag that was coming down ballot to him. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see how effective that that distancing effort has been well and every negative ad against him has featured Donald Trump that's exactly right yeah. Colorado's marijuana industry racked up 2.4 billion dollars in 2015 according to a marijuana policy group report released this week the report also found that marijuana is expected to surpass tobacco excise revenue numbers by 2020 uh, David for a long time we've known marijuana is a major industry in Colorado but this is the first time we started to talk about among the big players when you're talking about uh, tobacco excise revenue in 2020 being competitive with marijuana revenue. I'm not sure if most Coloradans were thinking that way. Um, does this surprise you? Do you see uh, changes from the, uh, changes uh, on policies because of this revelation? 
Well, one of the changes in policies is the government's going to have more money to do constructive things for the public because now that they brought marijuana out of the shadows and made it something that's highly taxed, a lot of money's coming in, and they've also been able to reduce spending on, you know, locking up people uh, for, for small-level marijuana offenses, which nationally, marijuana arrests outnumbered all arrests for violent crime in the United States, which I think is a gross misallocation uh, of, of finite resources. The, it's not just, though, that the marijuana is going up. It's, it's that tobacco use is going down, and it's not all because people are switching from, from lucky strikes to, you know, duck-kind gummy bears uh, or whatever, <laughs> which is, by the way, a healthier switch. It's like drinking beer and having beer instead of meth for your, your relaxation in terms of the health effects. But it, it's also vaping is huge. And what vaping is, is it's basically inhaling eggplant vapor. Nicotine occurs naturally in eggplants. It's extracted, and then vaping is not, it's not burning. A cigarette is combustion. You're not burning anything, but you're heating something up so it produces a vapor that people inhale, and they get the pure nicotine, which is not a health problem, without all the terrible uh, other things in cigarettes, such as tars and, and all that, that other stuff. Unfortunately, the Obama administration is trying to crush this very important public health development by imposing regulations on vaping manufacturers, which will drive all of the small ones out of business because it's impossible uh, for the small ones to comply, which means the benefits, the winners, are the companies like Philip Morris, which are moving into vaping. And, of course, they love high and oppressive regulation because they've got the legal departments and the money uh, to comply with all that. So I, I hope the administration stops its war on eggplants. I think the price for eggplants about to skyrocket in Colorado based on the analysis heard at this table. Uh, Eric, um, what, do you expect any changes in communities based on the growing economic power of marijuana? I don't know about you, Dominic. I had eggplant in my CIO bingo today. Um, so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, David. Uh, uh, we will see and answer your question of whether there are local impacts. I think one thing that we're going to sort out in this state, and the public is ultimately going to be heard from and sorted out over starting in this election coming up in 10 or 11 days and then over the next couple of years, is have we made peace as a state with marijuana, but we want to keep it sort of within constraints, or do we want to further expand its presence in the state? I think the Initiative 300 mm -hmm. vote in Denver will be an indicator. It's not going to be the final indicator. It's not going to be the final say on that, but it will be an indicator. Clearly, marijuana, as the numbers speak for themselves, is having a major impact on this state in all kinds of ways, culturally, socially, and in terms of the fiscal impact of tax revenues. I will go back to my statement. This was a, a couple of weeks after the law went into effect several years ago, after uh, Amendment 64 took effect. And the question was, is this a success? You can't evaluate this just by tax revenues. You can't evaluate it just by how smoothly this goes. This will be a public health evaluation that is made 10 or 20 years from now in terms of the impact on marijuana, of marijuana on this state. Even though we're now two or three years into this, it is way too early to make that conclusive judgment. Penn, uh, the legislature is used to uh, seeing lobbying from a lot of different groups, uh, big and small industries. But when you can say you have $2.4 billion as an industry, will the marijuana industry have a stronger lobbying uh, charge at the legislature? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It, you know, the, the marijuana industry is now big business. It's sitting at the table with some of the CenturyLinks and Excels and some of the other major players in this state. The difficulty is that I still think we have a significant segment of the population that's not quite at ease with the whole idea of marijuana, whether for medicinal or personal use. So I still think that needs to be resolved. Initiative 300 in Denver is going to be a very interesting vote. Um, I am at this point expecting it's going to lose because I still think people are saying it's all right if you use, but we don't know if we want public places where there's consumption. Uh, and so this is going to be a push and pull. We'll see for a while. And as we've talked about before, I think some of the proponents will not stop until basically you can consume marijuana like you consume liquor in a bar. Patty, I figured on this news that you had a very large thank you note because I don't think the marijuana industry gets anywhere uh, in this community with up the, the westward has done. Uh, were you surprised to see these numbers? No, if you've been watching, tracking it, it's not a surprise. What we need to know is how other legalization efforts will affect this. Five states have it on their ballot next week. Um, in the first on uh, November 8th, so California, Arizona, both Nevada, they all look like they'll probably pass. So we'll see. I think I think 300 will pass because when people voted for Amendment 64, they at least thought they didn't really think about what would happen to tourists visiting or people on the street, what they're going to do. So it makes more sense to kind of set up a social club the way bars work. And of course you can't smoke in a bar, so you're not going to be able to smoke pot, except you can vape things other than eggplant, I'd like to point out to David. <laughs> That's uh, 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 well said. And again, I think uh, when the eggplant industry becomes a $2.4 billion industry, they can thank Colorado inside out. You're welcome. The battle over the Dakota Access Pipeline took a significant turn this week as armed police officials had a heavy presence at the Cannonball Ranch site on, thir on Thursday. North Dakota authorities removed the protesters from, private, from, from the private property after occupying the area since Sunday and were asked to leave voluntarily. Uh, Eric, this wasn't in Colorado, but it's, it, Colorado's kind of a political hub for the West. So do you think issues that have been uh, sprung up in North Dakota are going to maybe see themselves here in Colorado, especially since how the protest ended? Not this specific issue, because we don't have a pipeline plan for our state in that way. But in terms of the battle over energy development, you see some of the same symptoms in the dust-up we have around Colorado, as you saw here. Let's not forget that the, the settlement that they cleared out yesterday was not the major settlement of the protesters. There's a major settlement, I think, over a ridge or a half mile or a mile away. This was a secondary settlement. I do not question in any way the passion and sincerity of the protesters. Just because you are highly passionate, highly sincere, doesn't mean you are necessarily right. Uh, it, this thing has been permitted to death, has been studied to death, environmental impact statement to death. Uh, the alternative, I mean, I think there are a lot of agitators among this crowd who would just want to keep that that natural gas in the ground. That is not likely to happen. It's not that many years ago in this country we were touting that we need to be more energy independent. Now that we are on the cusp of some degree of energy independence, there are people who obviously want to stand in the way of that. The alternative to a pipeline is to move this by truck or by train, which all statistics show is infinitely more dangerous than moving it by pipeline. It's the battle we have over any major infrastructure project in this country. Nothing comes easy. Everything is contentious. Everything is litigated. And in this case, it's not only litigated, but it is uh, protested in a very dramatic way. 
Penn, do you think the energy created from these protests, whether it's going to be successful or not changing anything in North Dakota, does it get harnessed to transform anything else down the road? Well, you know, I think it's like a number of things you do. The first one sort of starts a wave moving, and we have seen similar protests like this before for different reasons, but uh, we just had the one where the, the, the group was acquitted of, of occupying um, the, the federal land, uh, I think, up in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So um, this is not that unusual. I think we may see this more frequently because I'd speak, I think it speaks to a growing frustration people have with government in general and whether government is responsive. And oddly enough, I think it is that sentiment that both Sanders and Trump tapped into in different ways that's just playing itself out now in this particular context. Petty, uh, Penn brings up a good point about the, uh, the odd juxtaposition between that ruling we saw. Now, I know there are two different things. You have private property versus a federal, federal lands, things like that, but it was still odd optics to see that this week. What did you think? Well, to find those two things happening on the same day. So in Oregon, the Bundy and crew occupied federal land for 41 days. They got off completely and on trial. Uh, let's say those are the Trumpian supporters. In, with the Standing Rock, you have definitely the Bernie crowd. You've got a lot of young, new protesters who are out there. The big difference is they were on private land, this little camp not the big one, which is, is on federal land, but they were told to clear off the private land, but it's been um, dismaying for a lot of people, I think, who are just getting into this whole protest realm. There's going to be a, pro there's a protest today, this afternoon, at 3 in Denver, so we don't know how that'll go down while we're taping, but I think that's going to become a very heated issue. David, wrap it up for us. In a free country, you get to protest all you want, but you don't get to move on to somebody else's private property for a month and occupy that as part of your so-called protest. You don't get to burn and destroy four machines for construction that belong to someone else, and you don't get to fire three shots at law enforcement officers. All of those things were things that these uh, protesters in North Dakota did, and they were properly removed, and the ones who resisted the most uh, have been arrested and, and may be charged, just as the, the people in Maller, who at least didn't shoot at anybody, uh, got properly charged for illegally occupying uh, an, un an, an unoccupied uh, government building. Juries in this country have the power to acquit based on their view of the whole equities of things. Some of the people in North Dakota might be acquitted as well, but if you have the rule of law, people can't take over someone else's property. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, if you don't have a life and you do have access to Google, there is nothing more interesting than going on with WikiLeaks and throwing in a variety of Colorado terms, which I happened to do yesterday and found, I mean, most of it is mind-numbing minutia, but I found a wonderful um, email from Wellington Webb to John Podesta 15, 18 months ago, about the very mysterious and coincidental sighting of John Hickenlooper with Martin O'Malley, as though Martin O'Malley was going to be the Democratic candidate for president. So go and look. It is unbelievable when you think about the tens of thousands of leaks there have been, just how mind-numbing some of these are. It's nice to see Colorado getting its play. It's yeah. nice. We, not a lot, but we've got some. <laughs> David. If the Democrats had had the sense to nominate Martin O'Malley, who was a mediocre governor of Maryland, they would be on their way to a victory of at least 10 points and probably maybe a 20-point national landslide. 
the disgrace is another thing that comes from WikiLeaks, which is the uh, the eco nuts uh, who cooperated to try to destroy the writing career of University of Colorado environmental professor Roger Pilkey, who. Pilkey believes that man-made global warming is real, but he rejects the, the anti-scientific notion that it's caused an increase in hurricanes since we are now at an all-time hurricane low since 1851. Eric. We've talked much around this table about Amendment 71. Uh, the oil and gas industry has poured unbelievable amount of money. They had raised all this money in anticipation of having to fight fracking measures. So the fracking measures didn't make the ballot, so they took all that political money and TV time that had been purchased and dumped it into the campaign in favor of Amendment 71. I happen to think 71 is the right, the right problem, the wrong solution. It, it, it not only raises the bar, it puts it on stilts. But whatever your view on 71, I've defended the oil and gas industry on a number of issues against attacks of various forms of hyper hyperbole. But on this one, it is an act of cynicism on the part of the oil and gas industry in terms of what they are doing in cahoots with the Amendment 71 campaign. Penn. You know, I'm still troubled by the activity of WikiLeaks and, and the role they're playing in society. And, and, and Patty referenced it before. I am just disturbed by for lack of a better term, a bunch of thieves uh, stealing people's private property and putting it out there for the entire world to see and then having the gall to act as if they're performing a public service. Right. We wouldn't do the same thing about pawn shops if they were stealing stuff out of our houses. Yeah. Say something nice about somebody. Patty? Well, in this case, I'd say WikiLeaks did a public service. I'm going to say something nice about Chelsea Clinton, because as you look at the incredible greediness that had infected the Clinton Foundation, you see that she was very concerned about what she saw as going down the wrong road, ruining her family's legacy, upset about what was going on in Haiti. So if you follow the trail, Chelsea Clinton comes off very well this week. I think America would prefer an Ivanka Trump and Hillary Chelsea Clinton the race in the middle of the scene right now. David. The damage that Trump's done to his brand is going to mean that Ivanka's going to have a lot less money than she may have been counting on from hotel <laughs> revenue. Uh, the good thing is the people who don't blindly follow one party or another, but who make discerning choices and vote their conscience up and down the ticket for people of different parties who will best protect the Constitution and good government. Eric. This country, or excuse me, this world is rather short on role models. Uh, one of those role models is a young woman, Malala Yousafzai, who made a return trip to Denver a week ago, stopped in unexpectedly at South High School, which is this high school uh, full of all kinds of different immigrant groups. Uh, she was an inspiration to all the students assembled at South, and good for South and good for Malala. Penn. To all of you long-suffering Cubs and Indian fans, <laughs> your ship has come in. Regardless of the outcome, you ought to revel in this time. You're here. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. You can catch CIO and all of our debate programs from this fall. That includes all the debates on all the different topics, the issues, and the congressional races on our iTunes podcast page. So be sure to check that out. Also, at 9.30 tonight, our Both Sides of the Story tournament continues. The second semifinal round, you're not going to want to miss it next week, the third place match, and the finals. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Thank you.